Hello and welcome to the Idiot Book Nook Podcast. My name is Blazewing and my pronouns are they, them. I am Reading Dragon and my pronouns are she, her. I'm Lady Punnett. My pronouns are primarily she, her. Sometimes they, them. Today, today is a she, her kind of day, even though I wish it wasn't. And I'm Critter Shy. Uh, my pronouns are she, her, they, them. Today is a her day. We're getting into The Thief from the Queen's Thief series by Megan Whalen Turner, for those of you that don't know. Uh, we're going to be getting into Chapter 6, but just before we get into that, if you'd like to follow us on social media and find out what we're all individually up to on our various social platforms, or you'd like to check out the YouTube or the Twitch, which airs uh, Wednesdays right now at 9 a.m. Mountain Time, or you'd like to check out the podcast feed, you can do so at linktr.ee slash idiotbooknook and check us out there. Tell me guys, are we ready for chapter six? Well, because as, ready as, we'll ever be. as of this chapter, we are officially halfway done this book. Ooh. There's only 12 Damn, chapters to this book. With that, narrator, are you ready? Yep. Welcome to the Queen's Thief series. Book number one, The Thief by Megan Whalen Turner. Chapter six. In the morning, we ate the last of the food and drank the last of the water that the others had carried in leather sacks over the mountain. The bread was stale and rock hard. And I wasn't the only one who was hungry when we were through. The mag... I'm sorry. The magus saw me looking in distaste at the lump of bread in my hand, and he laughed. He was in a cheery mood and seemed willing to set aside our differences since he put me thoroughly in my place. I know, he said. Don't bother to complain. I'll get you fresh bed, fresh bread for lunch, I promise. How long till lunch? He turned to look at the trail ahead of us. It dropped steeply and gave us a view of the valley ahead of us. It was a more limited view than the one we had at higher up in the mountain. The river had disappeared, so had the sea. Can you see that break in the olives? The Magnus asked. I looked where he pointed and saw the rooftops of a few houses, only three or four miles away. We'll be there for, we'll get our lunch from there. Then I will leave the rest of my breakfast for the birds. I pitched the bread over the rocks of, around our campsite. Everyone but Pole did the same. As a soldier, he had probably eaten worse things. Soon we were once again in the open. The shallow groove carved by the, carved by the stream ended at the top of the cliff that was precipitous. That, yeah, that was the precipitous edge of the mountain. Sixty feet below whispered waves of olives between the cliff and the trees, like the foam left by breaking waves, were jumbled rocks of all sizes. 
to my left and to my right. The cliff, the trees, and the swirling rocks continued as far as I could see. Ahead, the olives rolled out from miles, rising a little but mostly falling away towards the hidden river. Their silver, their silver, their silver surface broken by islands of shiny green, which were dry the dry oaks and by lightning catchers that were lone cypress trees standing like swords on their hilts. The rooftops of the town that Damagus had pointed out earlier were the only man-made things to break the surface of the trees. It's like a sea! Sofo said, echoing my thoughts. It is a sea, said the Magus quietly. It's called the Sea of Olives. It was planned it was planted to honor one of the old gods so long ago that no one knows which one. These these trees stretch from one coast all the way to the edge of Dispotia. It is Dystopia, about thirty-five miles inland. Ambiades was interested in more practical knowledge. Um, how do we get down? I looked around for the goat path that I knew must be around, and I whistled when I found it. Glad we had a good night's rest. I said. Everybody did get plenty of sleep, didn't they? Nobody mentioned standing a three-hour watch. Well, dithering won't help, I said. The path began, began in a crevice left behind when a large rock had broken loose from the bluff and dropped to the ground below. There was a shelf about eight feet below the top of the cliff. I flexed my knees and jumped before the magus could stop me. Cole jumped after me, and though it's so close that he nearly knocked us both off the slope. I steadied him and called up to Sophos. Come on, you're next. That's Paul. Lie down and slide. Oh. Come on, you're next. Lie down and slide your legs over the lit. Oh, wait, hold on. Yeah, it that said is? I steadied him and called to Sophos. Okay, my bad. Alright, come on, you next. Lie down and slide your legs over the lip. Cole and I grabbed him by the legs and lowered him. Once he was down with us, the hollow was filled with bodies. I started the next phase of the descent and left Pole to help the Magus and Ambiades. There was no loose rubble to kick down, or I wouldn't have gotten first. But I did worry that one of the others was going to slide down on my head. I went as fast as I safely could. The path switched back and forth across the cliff, turning every ten feet or so, and dropping five feet at each turn. It was only about six inches wide, less in some spots, and it was more of a groove carved into the stone than anything else. There were two bits so steep that I sat down and slithered, grabbing a passing plant to slow down. As I went down, I muttered under my breath, mimicking the Magnus's voice. This trail isn't used much, he says. There are better ones. I'll bet there are, I said, and I swore out loud as my foot slipped, 
I recovered my balance easily, but banged my wrist against an outcropping and swore again. I sucked on the... I sucked on the sore spot as I skittered down the last part of the path and picked my way through the rubble at the bottom. The boulders there were huge, higher than my head, and rested on mounds of smaller rocks that they had dragged down with them when they were pulled loose from the cliff face. Once I reached the open space beyond the rocks, I waited for the others. They were slow. All four of them grabbed along the cliff, holding on with both hands, even nearly empty, their packs, the packs they carried threatened to overbalance them. Every, ugh, threatened to overbalance everyone but Pole. He and the Magus kept stopping to look over their shoulders at me. I looked over at my own shoulder and almost went to sit on the shade of the olive trees. But the Magus had been more civil than usual, and I wanted to keep him in a good mood. So I waited in the sunlight where he could see me. It was a hot day already, and the sweat trickled down the side of my face. When everyone else had made it safely down, we moved into the shade and sat down to rest. It was dark under the olives and cool. The trees were so old and twisted, and their leaves grew so thickly that they allowed very little light to reach the ground. Instead of juniper and sage growing underneath them, there was almost nothing, some thin grass, a very few spindly bushes. I'm going to walk into town to buy horses and lunch, said the Magus as he stood up and dusted himself off. It will take me almost an hour to walk there and back, in addition to the time it takes me to buy the horses and provisions. We're still a day behind schedule, so we'll have to eat while we go. He disappeared between the olive trees. Paul turned where he sat and opened the pack he'd been leaning against. No need to waste the time we have, he said, and pulled two wooden swords out of the pockets sewn to the outside. He handed one to Sophos and one to Ambides, and they began their fencing lesson. I remembered that scene. <sighs> Sorry, guys. I remember the scene that I had watched from the window in the mountain hut, and I suppose it had not been a dream after all. Swords up, said Pole, and they began drills, with which they were obviously familiar. Once they had bent and twisted for a while, and their muscles were prepared, Pole matched Ambides and Sophos against each other. They sparred carefully, and I watched with interest. Ambides was by far the better swordsman, but then he was four or five years older. Sophos was just learning the motions, but he showed some talent in coordination. With a good instructor, he'd be a dangerous opponent. For now, he was too short and too unfamiliar with his weapon to do anything except wave it around and hope it connected. At critical moments, he occasionally closed his eyes. When Mbindis leaned over his guard and whacked him on the head, I winced. You all right? Mbindis dropped his sword, looking concerned. I thought you'd block that. He put his hand up to rub Sophos's head, but Pole pushed him back. He should have. Tried again. He made Ambiades repeat the move over and over until Sophos worked out for himself a block that would come naturally. 
Sophos got banged twice more on the head, although Ambides only hit him lightly. He apologized each time, and I began to think that under the pride and prickles, there was might be some reason to like him. Finally, when Ambides rode over to the top of Sophos's guard for the seventh or eighth time, Sophos stepped to one side and blocked the attack from there. Good enough, said Pole. High praise indeed, and ended the lesson. Sophos and Ambides threw themselves down in the grass, panting while Pole put their wooden swords away. I checked to see that there were the pockets sewn out to each side of their packs, and the maguses as well. It explained why they hadn't taken the packs off and tossed them down the cliff before climbing down themselves. Nobody wants his valuable short sword dropped onto a pile of rocks. I was reassured to know that we hadn't come into the wilderness armed with only Pole's sword, but I wondered what the useless is. Elder and younger would do with theirs if they if we ever got into a fight. I also wondered if hidden in Pole's pack or the Magnus or the Magnuses was a gun. Acting on the king's business. They were entitled to carry one, at least in Sunis. Guns weren't as accurate as crossbows, but they were less awkward to transport, and to have one would have been a comfort. When the swords were back in their packs, Paul settled down on the, on the grass himself and looked expectantly at Sophos. Don't match your weakness against your opponent's strength? Sophos said hesitantly. And your weakness is... My height? And Abide's strength is... Years of fencing lessons. I said under my breath, but no one heard me. Sophos gave the correct answer. His height. Remember that. Then he praised Ambiades mildly and offered him a few tips. He and Ambiades talked like men for a few minutes about sword fighting. Pole clearly respected the things Ambiades had to say, and Ambiades looked pleased and content. I almost liked him myself. We still had time to wait for the Magnus, so I lay down on the soft dirt under an olive tree and closed my eyes. When the Magnus arrived, we were all except Pole sleeping. I woke when I heard the horses thumping towards us, but didn't move. It was, a pleasant, it was pleasant to lie and look at twisted branches and tightly packed leaves of the olive tree. The dirt under my fingertips was powder soft. There was a breeze that moved the smallest branches and the tiny bits of sky that showed through, the, that showed through were white in the midday heat. Flies buzzed around my head. The only other sound was that of the horse's hooves getting closer. It didn't occur to me until at the last minute that it might be a stranger and not the Magnus at all. I nearly jumped out of my skin, but there had been no need to worry. Glad to see someone is alert, if a little bit late. Said the Magnus as he walked between the trees. And Bides and Sophos scrambled up and took the horses while the Magnus talked to Pole. 
I think we'll ride down the road and follow it. We won't reach Profes Profactia until, until nightfall, and we can cut through. We can cut around it through the trees. There's a moon tonight. We should be able to stay on the road until quite late. We'll make up for the time we've lost. Pole nodded and got up. He helped the uselesses pack the provisions and the mag that, yeah, pack the provisions to Magnus had brought into saddlebags. Then we all mounted up and rode slowly between the trees, while we ate fresh bread and cheese and more olives. We kept having to lean close to our horses' necks as they walked under the branches, without caring whether their riders would fit under the branches as well. Donkeys would not have been so tedious. Donkeys, however, would have been left behind once we reached the road. We moved quickly. I was still hungry, but quit eating. It was too much bother to go on holding the horse with one hand while eating with the other. With pole on one side of me and Ambiades on the other, I bounced up the road until I got used to the feeling. The Magnus had cautioned Ambiades and Sophos to keep their mouths shut when they were within earshot of the other travelers, as their accents would mark them as members of the Sunnis' upper class. You don't need to worry, Jin. He said to me, teasing again. Really? Atolian gutter is indistinguishable from Soslian gutter. Sonesian. He said, and I laughed with the others. I was very content with my slang and my half-swallowed words. When we were alone on the road, walking the horses for a while to rest them, Sophos asked what would happen if anyone guessed we were not from Atolia. Nothing. The Magnus shrugged. Traders will do business here. Trade would go on right up until there are open wars. It might not even stop then. And if they knew why we were here? I asked. The Magus gave me a sharp look before he answered. They'll probably arrest us and turn us over to their queen. I gathered that he wanted to leave the rest unsaid. And she would... I prompted anyway. Behead us all. Publicly. I shivered and rubbed the back of my neck with one hand. Ambiades looked positively green. He was touchy and unpleasant for the rest of the day. It was twilight and the traffic was increasing when we approached Profactia. We dawdled until there was no one in sight on the road and then disappeared into the olive groves, where we waited again until Pole and the Magnus agreed that all of the olive harvesters would have left the trees for the night. We rode quietly through the trees and saw nothing of the town. I was a little disappointed. We returned to the road without being seen. The moon was up. The night air was cool, and we pulled our cloaks out of the saddlebags. We stayed close to the trees like robbers and went on until I was almost worn out. Just as the moon was setting, the Magus finally turned his horse into the trees to look at the far campsite. We ate our dinner cold and slept without a fire. Pole woke us before the dawn, and the Magnus led us deeper among the trees, 
following the guidance of his compass in its brown leather case. After an hour or so, when the sun was beginning to be warm, we stopped for breakfast in a tiny open space where several olives had died and not been replaced. Breakfast was just bread and more cheese, but Paul boiled water over a tiny fire and made coffee that was thick with sugar. That'll wake us up, he said. There was a small nearby spring. Oh, there was a small spring nearby, and the Magus suggested we have a wash before we packed up. Sophos, the Magus, and Pole shook their clothes and splashed ankle deep into the chilly water. After a few hesitations, I joined them. I didn't want them to think I liked being clean, but the cool water was refreshing. Only Ambides remained on the bank, still wrapped in his cloak, while his small cup of coffee cooled in front of him. He'd been quiet all morning, and, I realized, quiet the evening before. No taunts for me, no jibes for Sophos. He wasn't thinking about a bath in the spring, and I was wondering what unpleasant thoughts were on his mind when he jumped like a startled cat. The Magnus had flicked cold water on him. Come wash, the Magus said, and Ambiety stood, stood up and dropped his cloak beside the others on the stream bank. It lay next to Sophos and made a very poor showing. The other cloaks were all made out of, were, were all well made, but ordinary. Mine was probably one of the Magus's old ones cut down, and Pole's was a plain military cloak, cloak. But Sophos was particularly fine specimen, made of expensive fabric, generously cut with a stylish silk tassel hanging from the hem at the back. Beside it, the narrow cut of Ambiety's cloak was flashy but out of fashion. There was a line of little holes poorly darned that ran from the neck of the hem, where a moth had been eating it during its summer storage. As he dabbled his toes in the water, Ambiades looked over at the Magus and Sophos, who were already stepping out of the stream, finished with their quick wash. His eyes narrowed, and the hair on the back of my neck started to rise. I've seen Emphy before, and I know the damage it can do. Ambiades caught me staring, and his envy was replaced by righteous contempt. If one thing was perfectly clear to him, it was my worthless place in the universe. What are you looking at, sewer filth? He snarled. The Lord of Rags and Tatters. I said with a false smile as I bowed elaborately and gestured to his ratty cloak. A moment later, I was on my back in the cold water of the stream with the sun in my eyes and my ears ringing. Ambides stood over me, shouting something about his grandfather's having been the Duke of somewhere. He would have kicked me. But Pole was there and put a hand on the, to his shoulder to pull him back. A moment later, the Magnus was standing between me and the sun. A little circumception might be wise for someone in your position, Jin. He said mildly. Not to mention an apology. Well, my position was not a good one, I was willing to admit. But it was easily changed. I pulled my knees to my chest and rolled myself onto my feet. A 
apologize? I said to the magus. What for? I walked away, nursing my swelling lip and licking the blood from the corner of my mouth. I paused to fetch a comb from an open saddle and then sat on the stump by a dead olive tree to get the tangles and maybe some of the prison lice out of my hair. Paul packed to get his coffee pot into a bag and Ambides and Sophos pulled the saddles on the horses. The Magus stood watching me. After a moment, he opened his mouth to comment and I expected him to suggest I cut my hair off, but instead he asked sharply, Where did you get that comb? I looked at the comb in my hand as if perplexed. It was a nice one, probably very expensive. It was made from tortoise shell. It had long teeth and was inlaid with gold at the ends. I think it's Midas? I said at last. I'd taken out of his pack. Sorry, I lost my page for a second. And Bites turned so quickly that the horse he was saddling reared in an alarm. He left it pulling at its head tie and crossed the clearing to snatch the comb out of my hand. He swung his fist towards my face, but this time I was ready, and he hit my shoulder as I turned away. Still, he knocked me backwards off the stump where I was sitting and landed in the dirt on the far side. I landed sail- safely, but I yelped that my I yelped that my arm was broken. Ah, you broke my arm! For the second time that morning, the Magnus was standing over me, this time looking concerned. Did you land on it? He asked, bending down. No, the one he hit. I said. He's broken my arm. Which was a dreadful lie. And when the Magnus saw that, he stalked away in disgust. He explained to Ambides, loudly enough for everyone to hear, that if I'd fallen on my arm, I might very well have sprained a wrist, and I would then have been no use to him at all. I thought I made that clear to you a moment ago. He punctuated his next few comments with blows to the head with that seal ring of his while I lay and listened to Ambides yelped and resented being treated like a tool, even a valued one. Once he had delivered his lecture, the Magus left Ambiades to finish saddling up the horses and went to repack the soap and his razor into his saddlebag. Several times I saw him look up with a puzzled expression, not at me, but at Ambiades. If he thought he'd pounded good nature back into his apprentice, he was wrong. I saw the poisonous looks Ambiades sent back. When Sophus was done saddling his horse and poles, he loaned me his own comb. I told him to his face that he was much too nice to be a duke, and he blushed deep red and shrugged. I know. know. That's so false. My bad. Okay. It's okay. I know. He said. So does his father. Snarled Ambiades, leaning down from his horse as he rode by. It was not a... Propitious? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Prop- propitious. Yeah, propitious. Yeah, that's a weird one. Okay. It was not a propitious start to the day. Ambiades sulked for most of the morning 
and Sophos rode with his shoulders hunched, trying to ignore the tension in the air. As a bird screeched in the distant forest. I'm so sorry. I don't know why you're so chatty today. You're good. We So we know you have a bird. We know, you know, Grim is kind of important. I mean, we have him on our logo. There are going to be times where he is a little more chatty than normal. Especially if he thinks you're talking to him. He does. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to hold him. Aw, hug time. Okay. <laughs> yeah, maybe if I pet him at the same time, he'll stop. <laughs> All right, Sophos rode with his shoulders hunched, trying to ignore the tension in the air. I reached up occasionally to check the size of my lip. At one point, I muttered, You learned something new today. What are you learning? Sophos asked. To keep my mouth shut, I hope. You mean not bragging in wine shops that you're going to seal the king's seal ring? That's exactly what I was thinking. I said. Yeah, it's that, that wasn't exactly. That wasn't exactly what I was thinking. I said. But you can bet I won't do that either. Now, tell me. If Ambiades has an exalted grandfather, why doesn't he have a better cloak? Sophos checked to be sure that Ambiades was riding ahead of the Magus and out of the earshot. His grandfather was the Duke of Emen. I had to think for a minute. Oh, of the Emen conspiracy? I asked. I was quiet myself. Ordinary people didn't talk out loud about the human conspiracy. After he tried to return the oligarchy oligarchy, and was executed, his family forfeited their lands and titles. I think Ambiety's father did inherit some money, but he lost most of it gambling. Last winter, when Ambiety's wrote to his father and told him he needed a new cloak, his father sent him one of his old ones. Ah, I said. Jeez, poor Ambiades. Sophos looked at me sideways. Is that me or Jen? Let's go with Sophos. I think. Um... Okay. How can he look down his aristocratic nose at the unwashed masses? Oh, no, that's definitely that, that's Jen. A gin. That's a Jin. That's not a Sophos line. How can he look down his aristocratic nose at the unwashed masses when he's as poor as everyone else and landless to boot? I bet he wakes up every morning and can't stand it. We stayed away from roads. Although we crossed many dirt tracks, we picked our way carefully between the trees and moved mostly at a slow pace. From time to time, the Magus checked the compass to make sure we stayed course. We stopped early in the evening, as no moonlight will penetrate the crossword cr crisscross leaves 
but we were far enough from the nearest town that the Magus approved the large cooking fire. And Pole used some of the dried meat and the provisions to make a stew. There was no conversation around the fire as we ate. After dinner, the silence was strained. Finally, the Magus spoke. If Jin can take a few liberties with old myths, I suppose I can too. He said, and began to tell Sophos another story of the old god. Excuse me? So the way we you framed heard. this last time was the person who's telling the story is actually telling the story. Alright. Here I go. Eugenides and the Sky God's Thunderbolt. After her argument with her consort, the sky, Earth gave Hephaestia her power to shake the ground. The sky had promised to give Hephaestia his thunderbolts, but he delayed. He made excuses. He sent them to be cleaned. He loaned them to a friend. He'd forgotten them by a stream when he was hunting. Finally, Hephaestia went to her mother and asked what she should do, and Earth sent for Eugenides. Earth had promised that she would give no more gifts to him except those which she would give to all men. So she told Eugenides that he must use his own cleverness if he was to acquire the attributes of the gods. Cleverness was a gift she had given all men, although to few had she given as much to the woodcutter's son. She told Eugenides that the skies sometimes lay in the evenings with one of the goddesses of the mountain lakes, and when he did, he left his thunderbolts beside him. Eugenides first went home to his mother and asked for for the moleskin blanket that had covered him as a baby. She took the blanket to old Oxamines, Oxamines, the tailor, and asked him to make a suit from it, both a tunic and leggings, and Oxamines, the tailor, did. Then Eugenides went into the forest and begged from every thrush a single feather and he took those to Olmia the weaver and she asked her to make him a feathered hat and Olmia the weaver did ah. then Eugenides climbed to the mountain lakes and sat quietly in the cover of the trees and waited for the sky god to come when the sky came to the lake in the late evening he removed the thunderbolts from their shoulder harness, and then laid them down beside the lake. When all was quiet, Eugenides moved through the bushes with hardly a sound, but the lake heard him. She said, We don't have a voice for the lake yet. Who would like to take that? Um, I'm thinking either dragon or critter. I can be a lake. Go for it. Focus, eyeballs, goddammit. <laughs> One moment. Yeah. Ocular issues. What was that that moved in the bushes? And the sky looked, and he saw the shoulder of Eugenides' tunic. He said, Oh, I'm this guy, I think. Only a mole that sneaks through the twilight. 
and Eugendes moved still more quietly, but still the lake heard him, and she said, What was that that moved through the bushes? And the sky looked, but not carefully, and he saw the edges of Eugendes' feathered hat, and he said, Only the thrush that settles in the bushes to sleep. And Eugendes still moved more quietly, and not the lake nor the sky heard him as he slipped away with the sky's thunderbolts and carried them across the top of the mountains. It was dark when the sky went to retrieve his thunderbolts, and when he could not find them, he thought at first that he had mislaid them and searched all over the mountaintops, and it was day, it was a day before he knew they were gone. He saw Eugenides crossing the plains at the base of the mountain, and he stopped him and demanded his thunderbolts. Eugenides said that he did not have him, and the sky could not see that this was true. Then tell me where they are, the sky demanded, but Eugenides refused. I will take you in my hands and twist you into dust, the sky threatened, but Eugenides still refused. He knew that the sky could not hurt him without breaking his promise to earth. The sky threatened and Eugenides was frightened, but he would not yield until the sky agreed he would give him whatever he asked if Eugenides would tell him what he had done with the thunderbolts. And Eugenides asked for a drink from the wellspring of immortality. The sky raged and Eugenides trembled, but he stood his ground because bravery was a gift that earth had given to all men and to her son in full measure. Finally, the sky went to the wellspring and fetched a chalice of water, but he laced it with powdered colesis root before he gave it to Eugenides. Eugenides told him where he put the thunderbolt. Look on my sister's look on my sister's throne in her inner hall where she will rule all lesser gods and you will see them. Then he drank the water and tasted the bitterness of the coleus root, and his mouth twisted. In the water of life, said the sky, the coleus will not harm you, but it has made the cup bitter, so I will make your life bitter. And he left. He went to the great hall of gods, to the throne of Hephaestia, to seek his thunderbolts, and he found them, and Hephaestia as well. The thunderbolts were resting in her lap, and Hephaestia made no mention of Eugenides. She only thanked her father for keeping his promise, and the sky could not protest. Thus the sky made Eugenides immortal, and yield to Hephaestia the, powers of, the power of his thunderbolts. With those, and the ability to shake the earth, she became the ruler of all gods, except the first gods. Well done! I said when the Magus was finished. Why, thank you, Jin. Did he genuinely sound flattered? And thus ends Chapter 6 of The Thief from the Queen's Thief series by Megan Whalen Turner. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can do so at lanktr.ee slash idiotbooknook. Once again, you'll be able to find links to all of our individual socials, our podcast, YouTube, and Twitch. But for this episode, uh, I believe episode 101 of the Idiot Book Nook, I'm Blazewing. I am the Reading Dragon. I'm Lady Punnett. And I'm Critishai. And we'll see you next episode. Bye. Bye.
Goodbye. Podcast episode.